Um, my name is Matt Moberg. I am one of the leaders here of this community, and we are thrilled that we are gathering in this space tonight. As Christian noted earlier, um, we're a community that gathers around the good news of Jesus. And for us, that good news, it, it's not just expressed, but it also must be embodied. And when it is embodied, it can't just be about the good news. It also needs to speak to the bad news in the land. And so one of the things we've set out to do is try to engage in the works of social justice in our city, in our neighborhoods, and have honest and authentic conversations as we do. Um, one of the ways that we've been able to do that is by having wise sages like John Pavlovich lead the way and show us how we go about this work. Our board last year went through John's book, A Bigger Table, and it was uh, enlightening, expansive. What other, Debbie, you got anything else you want to throw in there? It was great. It was great. We loved it. John is a voice in, in an age right now where the church, things are a little murky. And the future is a little undecided. And there's a lot of false definitions being attached to people's ideas of good news that actually don't pan out to be very good for a lot of people. I'm grateful for a voice like John's, somebody who is both pastoral and prophetic. And so will you please give a warm Welcome from John Pavlovich. I cannot tell you how great a weekend I've been having. I've been here for a few days, Minneapolis, and you've rolled out the frozen carpet for me. So <clears throat> it's just uh, such a such a great place, and so many beautiful things are happening around here. I'm just honored to be a part of it, to be in your presence for a little while. As I begin, usually I'll, I'll share something and then I'll say, what are you thinking? But I want to know what you're thinking before I even begin. I want to know what is the default setting of your heart lately? If you could describe your emotional state, give me a word. Tired. Tired. Anxious, conflicted. Despair, overwhelmed. Resentful, guarded, disheartened. Okay, good night. <laughs> so, you know, I've been a local church pastor for 23 years, and um, there have been hundreds, thousands of times over those 23 years when I found myself asking the question, how did I end up here? I had it while in the middle of a middle school lock-in, praying for the Lord to come and take me, Right? I've had that thought while standing with a few dozen students in a field in the middle of suburban Philadelphia in what I now realized was an evangelistic corn maze with my youth group. <laughs> I thought it was just Halloween fun, but in the middle of the corn maze, there was a guy with a VHS player, and he said, sit down, and he showed my students a film about what they had to do if they wanted to get eternal life and escape hell, and if we wanted to get out of the corn maze, that's what we had to take part in. <laughs> How did I end up here, right? I can remember being with a group of students at 11 o'clock uh, in Greenville, Georgia, in the parking lot of a hotel, only to realize we were booked in Greenville, California. 
how did I end up here? I thought that. I thought it as I sat with a high school student in the police station after he'd made a really horrible choice trying to help him understand that he was still loved, right? How did I end up here? I, I can remember being in a room having to tell two sisters that their mother had passed away and thinking, how did I end up here, right? Over and over, I've had that question. And recently, I was in the middle of the parking lot of a church in Fresno, California, and I was speaking much like I am now, and about 30 feet away were some of the proud boys, some alt-right protesters who were screaming at me while I was trying to preach of a God of love, and I thought, how did I end up here? But we'll get to that later. But every minister has those moments, and I know you are asking that of the church. How did we end up here? How did we end up with something that is still so toxic toxic and still so divisive and still so damaging to so many? How did we end up here? And we're asking that of our country, right? We're saying, how did we end up here that we're still arguing the value of a black life, that we're still deciding whether or not people choose to be gay? How are we still here in something that is so fractured? How do we have a Christianity that says that The president we have is sufficiently Christian to be voted by by many Christians. I've been traveling a lot lately, and as I walk into rooms like this, I I do a lot of talking, but I like to do a lot of listening too. And I look at people's faces, and I hear what you say, and I see your countenance, and I know that you're exhausted. I know the toll that these days take on you. See, I I see myself right now as sort of a war correspondent. I travel around and I see what's happening and I just try to report back to the world what I'm seeing because I want them to understand the devastation that's taking place. And the words that you shared with me, you shared those words. As a loving parent or a devoted friend or a faithful caregiver or a passionate activist, you are in the places you find yourself because you're a compassionate human being. I think that's why I do the work I do. I started to realize that I liked working with middle and high school students. That's counterintuitive, right? That's like I was like a storm chaser. Like that looks horrible. Let's go there. But I like to think that all the places I found myself have been because of an empathy that propels me to be with people I would not otherwise be with, to hear stories I wouldn't otherwise hear, right? I think this is the heart of Jesus that compels us to go to places that are going to bring turbulence, that are going to show us things we didn't otherwise see. And I think we're here as a church, and I think we're here as a country because we have a poverty of empathy, I think there is a growing contempt in the country for people who are not like us. I think there's a growing contempt for people who are in need. I think there's growing contempt for people from the outside. I have become a polarizing public figure talking about faith and politics, and I need you to know that wasn't the plan. In fact, if you're here and your plan is to be a polarizing public figure talking about faith and politics, you need prayer and you need a better plan, right? (laughs) But it's, it's a place that is, is really not a natural place to be because you speak words from the deepest place in you. You put those words out into the world and those words become the line around which people stand to argue with one another. But it's the place I feel compelled to be 
because I've seen things that I, I need to share what I've seen. But as I travel around, I think about the toll that this is taking on people, and I want you to know the war that we think we're fighting is not the war that we're really fighting. This is not about politicians. It's not about Senate seats. It's not about presidents. It's not about the House. This is about bedrock human stuff that we are all dealing with. This is about the deepest contents of our heart that we're reckoning with right now. And regardless of your politics or your theology, we know that we're different now than we were a couple of years ago, right? See, nothing has changed. We just see it now. The, the, the last couple of years have been an uncovering, right? We, we, we see things that we, we didn't see clearly anymore. Now that we see those things, our lives are different. And I think you feel it. Absolutely. Thank you, stranger. You know, you know you're in a trusting place when you just let human beings come up and go, hi, I'm going to touch you. Yes, please do. Friends, you're tired, and I know you're tired because it's exhausting to give a damn, isn't it? To be a person of compassion at a time when compassion is in such great demand. To wake up every day and to push back against predatory politicians and toxic systems and corrupt legislation and human rights atrocities and acts of treason and presidential tweet tantrums and just the pain out in front of you, right? To do that every day, it can wear you out. I don't know if you've noticed, but that's why you're tired. Because you're carrying around so much. You're carrying around on your shoulders these big realities that you're aware of, right? These, these political realities, these systemic ills. You're, you're carrying around those on your shoulders, and those are heavy enough, but you're carrying something else. You're carrying the individual stories that all those realities point to, right? You're carrying around the names and faces of people you know and love, people who are under more duress than ever. And it's those realities and those individual stories that you are being squashed under the weight of. And I know where they reside. They, they reside on your shoulders and they reside in your clenched jaw and they reside in your elevated heart rate and they reside in the knot in the pit of your stomach that you feel every morning when you check social media or you watch the news or you walk out into your community or you step out into your kitchen and you realize how much pain there is and how ill-equipped you feel to carry it all. I, I made a purchase in 2016. I bought a, a blood pressure monitor. Never needed one before, but my doctor said, you know, I think you should keep an eye on this because you look like you may die. And I, I decided, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going all in. So I got like high end, right, this beautiful cuff. It's really stylish even, and it's all, you know, digital. And, and, I, and I stopped using it. And people say, how's your blood pressure? I said, it's fine. I no longer check it. I just assume it's dangerously high. Right? This is how we live, right? We live in this place of elevated urgency. We live in this place of relational fracture. We live in this place where we see so much damage. And the question is, what do we do with this? Because there's a personal cost to your compassion. There's a price tag to cultivating empathy in days 
when cruelty is trending. I want to give you some symptoms of compassion fatigue. Let me see if you recognize any of them in you. Irritability, impatience, physical illness, emotional eating, addictive behavior, a fixation on social media, an inability to be present to the people who love you, an obsession with how terrible things are. Do you have any of those? So I got them all, friends. Because right now I feel, um, I feel upside down in the world. I feel uh, inverted. You know what I mean? Like I, I remember watching the inauguration and feeling like this feels upside down. And I, hearing people talk about Muslim bans and healthcare repeals and the separation of families, it feels upside down, doesn't it? I, I watched racists march through the streets of Charlottesville, right? And I, I heard what they were saying. I watched it all unfold like you did, and I thought, this is upside down. And I, I watched our leaders treat them with kid gloves, and I thought, this is all upside down. And over and over and over again, I feel the disorientation of that. I feel spiritually nauseous as a Christian. I feel it around my old church friends, extended family members, people I've known since childhood. I feel inverted in their presence. I think you understand that. I think you walk away from conversations you used to have with people that you used to see as compassionate or loving or Christ-like, and you don't recognize those things in them anymore. I think you feel estranged from family members and coworkers and people in your neighborhood that you used to have natural affinity with. And I think you ask a question a hundred times a day, is it me or has a huge portion of this country lost its mind? I have good and bad news. It isn't you. It's good news because of, because of what it says about you. It's bad news because of the place and time in which you find yourself, in which you've chosen to be present on the planet. The fact that you feel the disorientation means your faculties are intact. It means your mind is fully right. It means your heart is working properly. It means you still have a soul doing what a soul is required to do. Keep you human and profoundly inhumane times. If you feel that sickness right now, if you feel that fatigue, celebrate that. Because if the heart of Jesus is anywhere, it's in your unrest. It's in your disorientation because the compassion of Jesus is the whole reason we gather to have an empathy that propels us into the world. I love the image of Jesus, and he's doing Jesus preacher stuff. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's healing, he's busy. But it says when Jesus looked at the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. See, Jesus doesn't see what they're doing or not doing. He doesn't see their behavior. He sees what the world is doing to them. And that compels him to move toward them. The question for us right now with so much heaviness is how do we move forward? I don't know. Good night. <laughs> I've been asking a question lately and maybe I shouldn't ask it here but I'm going to ask it. No, I'm not going to do that. Um, I'll ask it. Thinking about how disoriented we feel, 
Hearing how loud the microphone is of people who claim Christ, who seem to have no empathy at all, one of the questions I'm asking over and over again as a pastor who's been doing this for 23 years is, is Christianity helpful anymore? Not do I believe it, not is, not is it convincing, not is it true or real, but is it helpful? Is the name Jesus so entwined with homophobia and racism and misogyny? Can we ever hope to retrieve it again? So if my wife were here, she would tell you that I'm a pessimist. I don't like that term. I like to say that I want to be prepared for the worst case scenario, right? I want to be emotionally and practically ready when it all hits the fan. And so that will often cause me to act as if the worst case scenario is inevitable, which is not pleasant to live with, right? But I can remember as the election in 2016 was approaching, I did what I do really well. I prophesied disaster. And I said, you know, I'm really not feeling great about this. I think this is not going to go the way we think it's going to go. And, and my wife is, is an optimist and a realist. And she said, Here are the, here's the data. Here are the poll numbers. Here's what's going to, you know, everything's fine. And I said, thank you for trying to talk me down off the ledge. But I feel comfortable here. I'm going to just hang out here. <laughs> and, so, and so election day came and I said, hey, family, I have a plan. I, here's my plan. I'm going to vote and then at 8 p.m. I'm going to take half an Ambien and I'm going to go to bed and you wake me up if we get good news. So I voted, 8 o'clock, took half the Ambien, laid down and I, I woke up at like 11.30 at night and I said, uh-oh. And of course, Tuesday turned into Wednesday and the reality came and it began for me and for people I know, maybe for some of you, a time of profound grieving. Right? Not grieving metaphorical, not some symbolic grieving, but what genuinely felt like a death, right? Maybe our idea of church or of family or of America, and we, and we grieve the things we saw in other people. We grieve relationships that we started to see fractures in. And, and the question was, what do we do with all this grief? And I wrote a book called The Bigger Table. Um, Matt talked about it, and... Um, I wrote this book and it was about how to create redemptive spiritual community with people who believe differently than you do. But I wrote it in 2015. <laughs> if you could have seen me then, friends, the guy who wrote that book was effervescent, right? Optimistic. I believe I even looked like a young Brad Pitt. I don't even know what happened, right? It's been terrible. But after writing that book, which I, I believed every word of it, it's my aspiration. It's what I've tried to make my life's work. But then we had presidential campaign and we had an election and we've had a presidency. And now I have a problem. Now I'm seeing my resistance to welcome people to my table. And see, now I'm dealing with my own fraudulence, my own hypocrisy, because I'm seeing that one of the obstacles to the expansive table may be me. Do you have an idea what I'm talking about? See, because I, I know what it was like to see a group of marginalized people and to say to a group of Christians, hey, you need to treat them the way Jesus would. You have to have love for people you don't agree with. You have to show compassion for people who are hurting. And now those people are saying, okay, go ahead. And I'm saying, hmm, that whole Jesus thing, when the rubber meets the road, it's not as easy as it was 
when I only had to love people I had natural affinity for. I think that's the challenge now. So is Christianity helpful? And if we determine Christianity is still helpful, how are we going to have an expression of Christianity that is going to alter the planet in the way that we believe is supposed to be altered with the love of Jesus? I think it is in the compassionate activist heart of Jesus. I think compassion has to be our why. It can't be to tick off somebody else, right? It can't be to disagree with someone. It can't be to put someone on blast. It's got to be because we have an empathy that compels us to do something and we can't do anything other than that. I'm trying to find a transcendent Jesus. See, I I hear Jesus as the good shepherd. I know that makes Jesus the shepherd, the compassionate caregiver, the pastor. But I see that the shepherd also makes him to the wolves, radical system influencer, right? Status quo changer. Jesus is pastor. He is activist. Can we have that transcendent Jesus? So I told you I was asking the question, how did I end up here? And a couple of months ago, I'm standing in Fresno, California, and I'm getting ready to speak on the compassionate love of Jesus. Hypocrisy warning, spoiler alert. And we had heard that the Proud Boys were going to be there, and I said, they're not going to show up. Protesters never show up. And one of the speakers was speaking before me, and I saw this small mass of people come through the parking lot, and they had cameras going, lights were on, signs, And they started yelling from about the last pew to here. And a woman was speaking, a woman of color, and they started screaming. And I was getting so angry, right? I started to feel the adrenaline rise in me. I started to see that my fists were clenched. And she finished her message, and I was next. And they played some song. I don't even know what it was because I wasn't paying attention. And I realized, John, when you get up there, you need to speak loud, and you need to not stop and give them an in so they can be heard. So I just went up there, and I sounded like an auctioneer, and I was preaching on the love of Jesus, and I was screaming, and I was talking as fast as I could. And I, as I was preaching about empathy, I wanted to murder these people. And I, I preached, and I finished... And the crowd was really behind me because they understood what was happening. But I walked off the platform and I was just like this. And I was embarrassed because I realized, boy, you are completely not living out this bigger table thing. So right after me was a woman named Genesis B. Genesis B is a queer woman of color. She's a poet. And she got up there and she started to talk and they were still yelling and I was still ready to fly over there. And all of a sudden she said, and before I go any further, I want to talk to my potential co-collaborators in the back. She said, I don't see you as my enemy. You're my potential co-collaborators. And she said, before I begin, would you come and embrace me? And the guy comes up with a camera and he's filming the whole thing. And he embraces her, and she says, I love you. And he says, I love you too. And he steps down, and everyone is crying, and they're applauding. And he walks to the back, and he begins slowly but surely yelling out things again. And I don't know if that moment changed him, but it sure as heck changed me. Because I said, she just taught him a lesson, but you know what? She taught me a lesson too. I know the better path of Jesus, and I know the easier path.
And I talked to Genesis afterward and I said, how did you do that? She said, I've dealt with people like this my whole life and I know that he's terrified of me. Friends, we have to realize that on the other side of every hateful thing is fear. And if we can do that, then we can lead with compassion. Compassion can even be our why dealing with those people. So last year, I'm in another parking lot of a different church in Raleigh, North Carolina, and it was on the... uh, it was at a memorial service for the people killed in the Parkland shooting. And I'm, I'm walking around. I didn't know anyone. And it was a memorial service. We were there to mark people's premature passing, right? We were there to lament a violence that seems to be commonplace. We were there to say, here we are grieving more people again. And so there was a heaviness befitting that day, but there was something else. As I walked around, there was sort of this counterintuitive hope rising up. And I looked at all the middle school and high school students who had planned the event and they had signs and t-shirts and they're hugging people and there's music playing. And I started to say, why do I feel joy right now? This is odd. And the, the service began and these 17 middle and high school students, they lined the stage and each one of them spoke the name of someone who was shot. And they lit a candle for them and they walked ahead of all the adults and we walked for a couple miles till we got to the state capitol. We placed those candles on the ground and we prayed over them. But during the, the ceremony itself, adults didn't speak. Middle and high school students spoke. And they spoke powerfully. They spoke prophetically, right? And while they spoke, the hairs in the back of my neck stood up and tears came to my eyes because I realized these young people were doing something beautiful in the face of something so ugly. And I realized that's where the compassionate heart of Jesus is. It does not seek malice or revenge. It just affirms goodness. It affirms love, but boldly so. And one of the young people stood up and he looked at the crowd and he said, um, I'm not, I want you to know I'm happy today. He said, I'm not happy because of why we gather, but I'm happy because I woke up today looking for hope. And he scanned the crowd and said, and there you are. This is what the people of Jesus do. We mine hope together and we step out into the world and we protect hope in times when it's most vulnerable. We keep it close to our chest when the winds and the waves begin to threaten it. And we show people that, There is still reason to carry on. You are defiantly doing this work, and it's exhausting. Don't stop doing it. Because a world out there so starved for compassion needs bleeding hearts like you to propel yourself into days you would not otherwise be in. If you read a bigger table, you'll read about my friend Rod. He invited me to his home in Santa Rosa, California. Beautiful home overlooking California wine country. And I got to the house and he welcomed me and showed me where my room was. And then I sat down and I looked at all this, you know, panorama in front of me. And I thought, this is a beautiful place. But it was more beautiful because of his hospitality for me, the way he made me feel welcomed. And Rod lost his home in the wildfires this past year. And I called him on the day he lost his home. And he said, John, it was insane. He said, it was 2.15 in the morning. We were awakened. I had 15 minutes. We saved what we could. And then we left and the whole place burned down. 
he said that phrase, we saved what we could. I want to leave you with that phrase. You can't change every reality out here, but you can change some of them. You can't help every white person see their privilege, but you can open some eyes. You can't let every LGBTQ person know that they're seen and loved and beautiful, but you can reach some. You can't change every community, but you can change this one. So I'm going to ask you individually and as a community to go out there and to save what you can. I'm going to paraphrase Jesus. I think he's okay with it when I say, blessed are the damn givers for they will right-side the world. Let's pray. God, we're tired in this room. We are grieving. We're feeling the disconnection and the isolation, and we see the fractures, and we feel overwhelmed. That is the price tag of compassion. And God, I pray that our hearts will stay soft that we will continue to cultivate empathy within us, that we will rely on your example and that we will live out in community something that resembles you. Because I don't know if Christianity is helpful, but I know that you are. I know that your counterintuitive love is the thing that will help. So we pray for our wisdom individually as a community. Help us to keep giving a damn. I'm sure for many of you, like myself, John's words um, spoke right to my heart. Certainly just uh, that sense of being disoriented and a little upside down and weary. Sometimes confused, not knowing where to step or what to say or, or how to move forward. But I love the reminder that we follow a God, a God of compassion a God who calls us to stand with each other, to see his image in each other, to love one another. And part of the beauty of this community is we gather on Sunday nights and we sing together and we hear a good word and we do some praying and we pause and we, we take part in communion together each and every Sunday night. And one of, for me, the... The moment, that moment that's so special is that we actually get to pause and remember that Jesus said, come to me, those who are weary, and I will give you rest. Because we can't do this good work. We cannot do this good work alone. We need each other, and we need Jesus. And so that's what we do when we gather. We remember that. We come together, and we break bread, and we dip it into the cup. And just like on the night before Jesus died, he sat at his table with his disciples, and he broke the bread. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. And likewise, he took the cup, and after pouring wine into the cup, he said, and this is my blood shed for you. It's the good news, the new covenant, and it's for you. So during the music, we invite you to come forward. And you can take the bread and dip it into the cup. In the front here, there'll be gluten-free elements. 
and regular elements on the sides. And as we come forward, we can remember that we follow a God of compassion and mercy that calls us to that same life. And that's our hope. That's the hope that we hold together. So please stand and together we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. 